Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. The heart and soul behind this message was really born from a conversation that I was having with Pastor Ben while we were out to lunch one day. Sometimes when we go out and we begin to talk about some of our daily devotional times or our Bible in a year reading, uh, we start saying what God has been speaking to us. And, and like what probably happens to you when you talk with your friends, it trails off and it can go into a rabbit hole and, and go into something much larger and much deeper and maybe more meaningful than you even meant for it to be. So we began to talk about our boy Samson who is going to be the main character that we'll focus on in our study tonight. And as we spoke about his life, we came to that one verse. That one verse, that one thing that everything in his life pivoted on in Scripture. You'll know about it here in just a few minutes as we get to it. For me, just thinking about that verse was a powerful moment because while it was something that happened 3,000 years ago, the possibility and the probability of it happening today are still just as likely or probable or even plausible. And so from that conversation, a thought was born, and from that thought, it grew into an idea and a spiritual concept. And really, that's the what I'm using as the title of tonight's message. You see it up there. It's, uh, if you're taking notes, separation anxiety. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the consequences and dangers of being separated from God. And then I'm going to give you four cautions of what we can watch out for in our lives that can lead to that type of separation. Like I said, our main attraction tonight is probably the most famous judge in the Bible. And he's also probably most like a superhero for you comic book nerds out there, the most character likened to a superhero in the Bible. In my mind, I would often equate him to the Incredible Hulk. Why? Because he's like super strong. But this guy who has seemingly a limitless amount of strength, and he's a warrior who is able to take on a thousand guys by himself, the sad thing is, is that while he's able to kill all these men and while he's able to do all these amazing feats of strength, he still couldn't defeat a woman. <laughs> Turn with me again, if you will, to Judges 16, and let me give you some context. Uh, the youth group, which, guys, it's so awesome that you're up here. Uh, I just want to say, this is not the church of tomorrow. This is the church of today. And so thank you guys for being attentive tonight. Thank you guys for coming and just and just being a part of this. And so we've been working our way through some of the Old Testament history books, and we just finished Judges a couple of months ago. And so I wanted to say that I found it really interesting growing up hearing about these stories from the book of Judges. And of course, if you're like me, you try to make a movie in your head, you try to to picture it as you do. And, and it was so funny because the term judges in my head would always conjure up this image of essentially like a Supreme Court justice, like Clarence Thomas having a gigantic gavel trying to, to vanquish his foes. But as I told the youth group and as I'll tell you, the term judges in the scripture reference meant heroic leaders. And so no, no powdered wigs, 
No long flowing black robes. All it just meant was that they were heroic leaders that God called from all different kinds of backgrounds. There were men, there were women, there were, um, there were guys that were considered, uh, servants. There were, there were left-handed dudes, which I'll talk about for a second. And what God did was he used them to deliver and to lead the children of Israel. And it's sad because boy, did the children of Israel need the leadership. This was a time after Moses led them through the wilderness to the border of the promised land. And you remember Moses had struck the rock and so he couldn't go into the promised land. So he had to pass on the mantle to his Padawan learner, Joshua. And all of a sudden Joshua comes in and they cross the Jericho or they cross the Jordan River and they come to Jericho and they're like, ah, and literally they just march around this city and they keep going around it because that's what God told them to do. That's how they were going to get deliverance over the city. And it's a, and on the seventh day, they they started to scream and blow their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. And so the children of Israel had their heyday with Moses leading them. And then Joshua just tearing through the promised land on this nationwide conquest to drive the inhabitants, the Canaanites out. And if you were here about a month and a half ago when I taught about Joshua, you remember that it was the Canaanites who had done so wickedly before God that he said, I don't want them in this land anymore. And so he had given his promise land to the children of Israel. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they had this national conquest. This gigantic army went north and then went south to drive these inhabitants out. And they were very successful on a, on a corporate grand scale. And so when they, they finally sent the armies home and they finally let uh, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of, of Reuben go back over the Jordan to where their families were, they were given an edict. And they said, okay, all of a sudden we've taken, we've taken LA, we've taken Phoenix, we've taken San Antonio, we've taken Houston. But guess what? We still got Lubbock and we got Plainview and we got shallow water. We're not going to use the whole national army to take those folks out. What you're going to do is you're going to gather together with your tribes and your people group, and it's your responsibility to finish pushing the inhabitants of the land out. Now, the sad thing is, is if you come to the front of the book of Judges, it says, but the tribe of Judah failed to obey the Lord and drive out the inhabitants. And then a few verses later, but the tribe of Simeon did not drive all the inhabitants out of the land. But the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of, of uh, Benjamin, all of them did not drive the inhabitants of the land out. And so eventually there rose up another generation who didn't even know what God had done for them. And so it began this sin cycle in the children of Israel's lives because while they allowed these nations to dwell near them, what would end up happening is they would start to intermingle or intermarry with these nations. And all of a sudden, as they would marry this nation, they would start to worship their gods. And as they would start to worship their gods, they would forsake Jehovah, the God of Israel, and they would go fully over to worshiping false idols. They would give themselves fully over to worshiping these gods. And so God, what it says in the scripture, would say, okay, I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm not going to make you worship me, so I'm going to let you go. I'm just going to give you over to that. And so nine times, nine times in the book of Judges, the children of Israel go through this cycle where 
God would deliver them and they'd be in good standing with him and they would worship him and they would serve him alone. All of a sudden, another nation would come up. They would be enticed by that. They would start to fall away and they would start to follow that other nation's gods. God would give them over to that. All of a sudden, the next thing you know, the children of Israel would fall into oppression where the people would would basically come and put them as slaves or put them under some type of, um, I, I always call it like it's the bug's life um, type of uh, system where the children of Israel would grow all their food and then all of a sudden the grasshoppers like from it's a bug's life would come in and either destroy it or steal it all. And, and that's really the case of what happened when you came to Gideon. Gideon was, was um, he was separating the wheat from the chaff. Instead of doing it on a hill, he was doing it on a wine press. And it was something that was supposed to be so simple and so easy because when you would separate uh, wheat from chaff, if you would do it in a windy spot, it would, it would just naturally do it for you. The wind would carry the chaff away. But to do it in a wine press was honestly asking for so much more work. Than you were, than needed, but they were hiding their food and they were trying to, to store it up because, uh, the Midianite oppression was so bad at that time. They had no food. And so we find these nine judges. We, we find a guy named Ehud. Uh, he's one of my favorites because he's literally known as the left-handed judge and, and he ended up delivering the children of Israel by, by hiding a dagger and going all like special forces into this king's chambers and, and he like stabbed the dude really bad and then he locked the doors and left and, and they were like, king, can you come out? And they thought he was in the bathroom and they were all embarrassed. And so Ehud was used by God to deliver the children of Israel. And then you had a woman named Deborah and Deborah was so awesome because she would just judge the children of Israel underneath a tree and this guy named Barak came and he's like, uh, we're supposed to go into battle. And she's like, go. And he's like, I'm going to only go if you'll go with me. And, and she was like, well, just know this. God's going to give the victory into a hand of a woman and not you because you're kind of, um, I see your tail feathers like chicken, you know. Anyway, Deborah and then Gideon, you know, and, and basically Gideon, because of who God was, led 300 men into a fight against 135,000 guys. And because of God's power and because of God's faithfulness, they won. And then you got Jephthah. Jephthah, who um, he, he found out you shouldn't make any rash proclamations before the Lord. And so finally, we come and we come to uh, first, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 14 or 13, I'm sorry. And we find that the children of Israel at this point have now uh, gone under oppression of, of their lifetime enemies, the Philistines, for 40 years. For 40 years. And this is the longest time of oppression in the whole book of Judges. If you're a Bible student in here, you know that the number 40 is actually uh, the number of judgment. And so God is saying, I'm not messing around. And it's during this time that an angel appeared to Samson's mother. Uh, she was the wife of a man named Manoah, and she hadn't been able to have any kids. And so this angel showed up, and he goes, guess what? And she's like, ah, you're an angel. He goes, you're going to have a child, and I want you to not drink any wine. I want you to not eat any food that's defiled. And then as you have this child, I want him to take the vow of a Nazarite. And if you remember John the Baptist, this is the same vow that John the Baptist took, and it required three things during the course of a Nazarite's lifetime. 
Number one, he was never supposed to drink wine or any type of alcoholic drink, strong drink. Number two, they were never supposed to come into contact with any defiled things like a dead body or a dead animal. And then number three is no great clips, uh, no haircuts. And so um, the wife, she gets all this information from the angel, and she is in like overloaded mode, a little freaked out, and she runs off to find her husband. And her husband, you know, sometimes guys, we don't have the best listening skills because he worried his wife missed some of the details. So he's like, God, replay the voicemail. And, and the angel shows back up to, to Manoah. And he goes, what's up, Manoah? And um, it, he's like, well, what did you tell her? And he's like, everything that, I, that she told you, that's what I told her. She must not eat grapes or raisins. No hearing it through the grapevine. She can't drink wine or any alcoholic drink or drink forbidden or eat any forbidden fruit, food. And then... Samson, your son, is supposed to be a Nazarite. And so immediately they realized that this was an angel. They went into just worship mode because they were like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. This is, uh, this is the presence of God. And uh, they ended up doing a burnt offering for him. And he ascended in the flame of the burnt offering. And it's so funny because at that point, Manoah freaks out. And he looks at his wife and he's like, we've seen God, we're going to die and husbands, you know this about your wives. Wives can be more level-headed at times because she, she like does like the whole like, what do you have told us if we were going to have a kid, if we were going to die, silly? And so anyway, she said, we're not going to die. He, he said, I'm going to have a son. And so um, nine months later, here comes little baby Samson, and he grows into a young man blessed by God as he grows up. And so the next time we see Samson in scripture is the next chapter. It's chapter 14. And he's of marrying age. And he finds himself a muy bonita mamacita that he wants to marry. But there's a catch. There's a catch. She's a Philistine. And the sad thing is, because to Samson, that doesn't matter. Because as one pastor put it, he's a he-man with a she-weakness. And so his parents, like his mom gets like that Jewish voice, like, why can't you meet a nice Jewish girl for reals? Come on. And so, but Samson's like, no, I saw her. It's love at first sight. Get her for me. And so the next thing you know, off go mom and dad and Samson down to the Philistine area called Timnah. And as they're going, uh, mom and dad go one way, Samson, he decides to walk through a vineyard. Wait, 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 wait. Does anybody want to say, like, um, what are you doing? Okay, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, come on, man. Okay, why is this an issue? Nazarite vow number one, no alcohol, no strong drink. Do you think you should be around a vineyard if you're not supposed to drink wine? I mean, are, should we be hanging out at Love or Yano uh, Winery if we're not supposed to drink anything like that? It's like free tastings on Saturdays. He's like, I just come down here for the view, you know. And it's like, no, you, you knucklehead, you're compromising. You shouldn't be around this. And so, um, you know, if you're reading along in, in chapter 14, it says God is using this. And I just wanna just wanna say real quick that God can and will work in spite of our sin but he doesn't encourage it or directly condone it. And then one more sidebar, and I've told this to all the youth group in here, and I want to tell this to all my, all my single ladies. Well, oh, oh. Um, 
Whoever you choose to spend your life with will change your life more than virtually any other decision that you'll ever make. And let me say that again. Whoever you choose to spend your life with will change your life more uh, than virtually any other decision that you'll ever make. Because whoever you marry, if they love Jesus, you're always going to push one another directly towards Jesus. But if you marry someone who doesn't love Jesus, you're always going to pull one another away. They're always going to be a pull on you, and you're always going to be trying to pull them, and it's not going to work. And so for Samson, here he is, a man who is a Nazarite. Nazarite meant separated. Nazarite meant he's supposed to be holy. He's supposed to be set apart. And yet here he is trying to marry into the world. And here he is visiting the land of the Philistines looking for this girl. And so as he's walking through this vineyard, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him because this lion just came out of nowhere. And Samson grabbed the lion and he just ripped it in half. He basically just ripped a hole into it and he killed it. And so as he went on to, to this little city to, to be engaged to, to this girl to set up the betrothal, he comes back and he's like, hey, I want to check this lion out. And so he comes back and all of a sudden, after a time, he looks in the lion's stomach and there's a honeycomb that's formed. And so Samson's like, mm, I really like honey. I think I'm going to grab some. Which everybody turn to your neighbors and say, gross. So not only does he get some honey, but he goes and he gets some, like, he's like, hey, try this honey. I mean, he's, he's having his parents eat the honey. He doesn't even, and the Bible specifically says, he doesn't tell them where he got it from. And so immediately, right here, we see that Samson is already compromising on his vows. He's already walking in the vineyard, and then already he's touching a dead body because the lion here is dead. There's honey being made in this line. And so it's really gross. And I was trying to think of the example where you kind of like taste something gross and you want your friend, you're like, try this. And they're like, why? And you're like, it's disgusting. And they're like, I don't want to try that. And then they do. And they're like, anyway. Okay. So right here, all of a sudden, it's time for Samson to get married. And uh, long story long, he goes and and um, they're supposed to have this wedding party and he decides that he wants to get rich by telling his best men on the other side of, of like the Philistines a riddle. And so he gets 30 guys together and he says, out of the, the strong comes something sweet, out of the eater comes something to eat, what is it? And it's all going to play into his future because what happens is he's bet them that they can't answer him and he's supposed to give them each a set of clothing if they can answer him and they're supposed to get him each a set of clothing if he can't or if they can't answer. And so he's fixing to, to basically get his wardrobe set up for the rest of his life. And it's going to be a sweet situation for him. But what they do is these guys go and they start pestering his bride-to-be. And they start saying, can you tell, Can you get us to tell him what it is? Can you find out what it is? Because if you don't, we're going to kill you and your father and your family. And she freaks out and she starts going back to Samson. And she's like, you don't love me. Just tell me what it is. And so finally, after so much nagging, he tells her what it is. And she goes back, she goes back and tells the guys, on the day where the riddle's supposed to be revealed, they come and say, hey, this is what it was. And he goes, 
you guys wouldn't have known the answer if you wouldn't have plowed with my heifer. That's the way that the Bible says it. And so he gets really upset and he goes down to a different Philistine city. He kills 30 guys and takes their clothes. And in a fit of anger, he doesn't even finish the wedding and he just goes home. And that's how the chapter ends. And the next chapter begins by him going back and he's like, hey, I came back for my wife. And they're like, we gave her to the best man. And he's like, what did you mean? And so he's all upset. And they're like, you can have her younger, like her younger sister and, and all of that. And he goes into a fit of rage because he is a man unchained. And God is using his rage. God is using his sin. But he ties some foxtails together and he burns some field down. And the next thing you know, his consequences end up getting the girl that was supposed to be his wife and um, her father's whole household burned to the ground. And so the Philistines are now rising up in, a, in an all-on, a full-on assault to come and get Samson. And it's kind of interesting because the Israelites at this point are like, what the heck are you doing? And they're so used to their captivity that they want to keep the status quo. They're like, Samson, don't, don't stir up the water. But God is using this situation because what uh, he wanted to do was use Samson to disrupt the Philistines and make sure that they fully didn't conquer the Israelites. And so he was keeping them at bay. And so the children of Israel tied Samson up and they delivered him over to the Philistines. And just as they delivered him, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he snapped the ropes and he grabbed the first thing that he could see, which was the donkey of a jawbone. And the next thing you know, after he finished wailing on them, a thousand Philistines were dead with the donkey of a jawbone. And all of a sudden, he made up this rhyme. Like, he's like, with this jawbone, I hit him in the head. With this jawbone, now a thousand guys are dead. And it's like, he just, he thought he was all cool, and he thought he could freestyle, but it really was terrible. And so then he thought he was going to die of thirst, and God provided a well. And it was just to continue to show that God was giving him this great strength. But in his weakness, he suffered from hubris, and he suffered from lust, and he suffered from from rage. And so chapter 16 is where we come to, and this is where we'll pick up. The first four verses talk about Samson visiting a harlot and the, the Philistines trying to catch him in their city. And he ends up picking these gates of the city up and he, and he goes and he throws them on a hilltop. And then verse four, that's where we pick up. It says, after it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. And so right here, we get um, a view into another story, one of the, the most famous stories of the Old Testament, the story of Samson, Delilah. And just a couple of quick notes. You know what's really sad? is Sorek means redness. It means special grapes. Guess where Samson is back? He's back in a vineyard. He's back in the very place that he shouldn't be. He's back in, in the land of the Philistines. He's back compromising. And so Delilah, his great love, is also a woman of the night. She's also a prostitute, but he's fallen in love with her. And really, she is only just out there to make, to make, uh, to make bling, to make money. And so uh, the, the leaders of the Philistines come and they say, listen, if you find out what the source of his strength is, we're going to make you super rich. Because 1,100 pieces of silver, 
the equivalent was over 140 pounds to Delilah. That's what she was gonna she was gonna make. And so she was gonna, she was going home at night, and she's like, "I'm gonna get paid, son." And uh, of course, it goes on in verse six. It says, "So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies, that, and with what you may be able to be bound." To afflict you. And so Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, yet not dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now the men were lying in wait and staying with her in the room. And she said to them, or she said to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, but he broke the bowstrings as the strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the strength, strength uh, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Samson, or then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound with. Okay, guys, at this point, if you're Samson, you're like, I'm out. I am so out. You, you tried to kill me. You tried to, to tie me up. And, and at this point for him, it became a, a game of cat and mouse. I mean, in his hubris, he was all excited about this. And he was like, finally, I can just mess around. And so instead of bouncing and instead of fulfilling his potential, he goes on. He keeps playing the game. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a, like a thread. And Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair or of my head into the loom. And right here is where we say, Uh-oh, Samson. She's starting to mess with your hair. That's a little too close to home. And so she wove it tightly in with a, with a batten of the loom. And she said to them, she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and he pulled the batten and the web from the loom. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass. She pestered him uh, daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistine came and they brought her money in their hand, and she loaded them to sleep on her knees. And she called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And as she said, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out before at other, as at other times and shake myself free. And guys, this is that pivotal verse I spoke about. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know 
that the Lord had departed from him. This, to me, is one of the saddest verses in all Scripture. Because here, you have this hero with virtually limitless potential that in his quest to please himself and to satisfy his flesh, he didn't realize the source of his strength was gone. He didn't realize that through his compromise and through his contempt for what God had given him, God left him. For the Christian, I would say that there is nothing scarier in life than realizing the power and the presence of God isn't there anymore. But I'll tell you guys, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't have a loving relationship with your wife and then commit adultery the next day. It's a journey. And, and, it, and for Samson, it was a journey of carnality. You guys have heard the term carnal before. Paul uses it in the New Testament to describe new believers who are still being controlled by their sinful nature. The term carnal is defined as being given to worldly or fleshly desires and appetites. And as we dwell on the weight of this verse, the one that says, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, as we dwell on the weight of that verse and the separation anxiety that we should feel when God is no longer there, I pray that we would all uh, know and we would all have that understanding that if the presence and power of God is not evident in our lives. So what I want to do tonight is I want to give you four caution signs of carnality in the Christian life. Four caution signs that you might be experiencing carnality or that, that carnality might be present in our lives. And, and four things that we can observe from Samson's life that we can identify whether we have them in our lives that will lead us to separation from God's presence. So number one, the caution, caution sign, excuse me, is dwelling in the world. Caution sign number one is dwelling in the world. Because from the moment that we meet Samson as an adult, he is hanging out in Philistine country. He's in the enemy's camp. Guys, if you were singing a country song, he's looking for love in all the wrong places. And that's exactly where he keeps going back to. Instead of using the potential that God had given him as a judge in the land of Israel, instead of dwelling in the land of Israel and rallying them and saying, hey, we're going to get free of this Philistine oppression and, and, and using his strength to stir up an army, instead what he's doing is he's impressing Philistine girls, saying, look, I can lift this rock. Check it out. It can go over my head. Whatever he is, he's dwelling in the world. And so what we want to do and use this as a caution sign is we have to ask ourselves, is are we letting the world dictate who we are? Where do we dwell? If you had the choice of, of on a Sunday morning being in the house of God or being in the house of Jerry Jones uh, at a football stadium, that's not a wrong thing. But if it's a constant thing, then what is dictating our lives? 
uh, Colossians chapter 3 says, set your mind on things above and not on things of this world. And, and one of my favorite illustrations is where is our heart calibrated? Is our heart calibrated to the things of heaven where heaven's time turns differently and heaven's economy is different because, because the world says, I want you to get the most out of life. I want you to, everything that you make, you spend on yourself, you take the best vacation, you make yourself the best person. That's what the world says. But God says, I want you to invest in things in heaven. I want you to spend your time on things which matter, things like my presence versus the world saying, like, take, 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 where God says, give, give, give. And so caution sign number one was dwelling in the world. Caution sign number two that we saw coming from the life of Samson was being spiritually insensitive, being spiritually insensitive because we see that Samson loved a good compromise, walking through the vineyards, eating honey out of dead lions. For him, it was, and we've seen Christians like this, unfortunately. For him, maybe it was, how close can I get to the line without crossing it? How close can I get to the line without crossing it? I went through a vineyard. I didn't drink any any wine or I didn't eat any grapes, but I, I felt one. I like I brushed my hand alongside of him as I walked, you know, like a dainty weirdo. But... um. How close can I get to the line without, without crossing it? That compromise, like, you know, as a Christian, am I supposed to be able to do this? And it's, it's like family. I pray that our walk with God is never getting even close enough to the line to know it's there and not walking in religious rules, but living in redemptive grace, not testing the boundaries of our freedom, but experiencing the limitless glory of God's love. When we were going through the Galatians series, you know, Pastor Ben would talk about how people would say, is it okay for me to drink a glass of wine? And he'd say, you know, the fact that you're asking that probably already tells you that what you're supposed to, you know, how you feel about it. Because while all things are, are profitable, not all things, or while our things are lawful, not all things are profitable. And so with this spiritual caution, with this caution, we don't want to be spiritually insensitive. And so my question as we are looking at these warning signs in our life, it's, it's are we sensitive to the things that we say and the things, the movies and the TV shows that we watch and the websites that we visit and the music that we listen to? And again, there's no judgment here. There's no condemnation. Only you can know, is it benefiting you? And if you're like, man, I love war movies and I can see blood and guts coming out and guys like, or whatever, you know, it is. And it doesn't affect you to where you're sinning or you're stumbling or you're wanting to be drawn into some type of violence or, or whatever it is, then it's not going to cause you to stumble. And that's not a thing for you. But if all of that does is like, like when my brothers would watch karate movies, we would watch a karate movie, and I knew I was going to get karate chopped in the head the moment the, cre- the credits rolled, because what it did was it incited them to do exactly what they saw, and it was like, wow, you know? But here's the thing. I use that as a comical reference, but there are certain things in our life, you know, certain music that I, I just deleted from my playlist because I didn't even realize it had, it had some really vulgar language, and it had some things that took me to a place where I didn't want to go. And, and like, you know, a rap song would come on, and the next thing you know, I'm like, I'm the whitest guy I know, and I'm like, you know, and, and I mean, for me, it just wasn't the right thing to do. And so what we want to do is we want to be spiritually sensitive. We don't want to be spiritually insensitive to the things that would cause us 
to be separate from God's presence. Number three is sinning without remorse. Number three caution of carnality is sinning without remorse. Because at no point did Samson, even though he was raised in a Christian household by God-fearing parents, show that he had any type of conscience about visiting a prostitute. Did he have any type of conscience about his uh, his actions resulting in the consequence of his uh, wife-to-be and her father being burned in their house? Even though the Bible was clearly against um, visiting a prostitute, even though that was clearly against God's law, God's law, he sinned without remorse. And the sad thing was that he was the ultimate Pharisee here because he still had his hair, which was the outward sign that he was keeping his vow of holiness. His hair was that, that sign of a Pharisee like, hey, I'm a Nazarite, I'm separate unto God. And yet here he is visiting a prostitute. And so he sinned without even a thought. And so our question that we have to ask ourselves is, when we sin, do we feel it? Are we like, oh, God, I I messed up, you know? I know that I'm forgiven, but I know that that's the reason that you had to die on the cross, and I'm so sorry for that sin. Are we remorseful for our sins? Or can we sin and we're just like, whatever, grace. Hashtag grace, take that. You know, whatever it is, because if that's the case, then we need to realize that's a red flag because that means that we're carnal. That means that we could be in that carnal mindset. The last thing, guys, number four, is forsaking faith. Forsaking faith. And and here's where we're going to spend a little bit of time because we talked about Samson hanging out in the Valley of Grapes, and we talked about him eating from the lion, touching dead things. Now we find him forsaking his faith and cutting and breaking his vow of holiness through the cutting of his hair. I've spent a lot of time dwelling on this for us as believers because Samson's hair was his last strand of holiness unto God, his last connection to the vow, to the separation from the things of this world that he had committed to, that his parents had committed him to. And so to the modern-day Christian, Samson's hair that had never been cut is much like our faith, because our faith in Jesus is what covers us in his blood, and his blood is what makes us righteous and separates us from the world. And so when Samson said, you know what, it's my hair, cut it off and I'll be weak like you, he forsook his faith He broke his vow, and as they were shaving his head and as they were shaving his beard, all of a sudden the last connection that he had to that holiness, that separation in God, departed. And when Samson gave up to the the secret to his strength, he forsook his faith and he broke his vow because he wanted to feed his flesh. And for us, when we live in and when we continue to practice constantly sin, when we choose to practice sin, we talk about like, we're going to sin. We're sinners. We're going to make mistakes. We're always going to sin. We have a sinful nature and we are fighting against that. And so if you're like, I lied today. I'm so sorry. That is understandable. 
you know, we confess our sins, we, we clear the air, but Christ died on, on the cross for those sins. So I don't want you guys to misunderstand what I'm talking about. Practicing sin is constantly coming back to it and doing it over and over again with no remorse, no thought that it separates you from God. No, um, no, uh, regret feeling that you've done something wrong. And so if we live in and practice constantly sin, what we do is we put these three things together and we forsake our faith. And that is the easiest way for us to experience a void and, and feeling the power and the presence of God in our lives. And, and tragically, Samson can be summed up like this. Samson was born for holiness for separation from the things of this world that would defile him. He was supposed to be separate from them. But in the course of his carnality and desiring to feed his fleshly appetites, he ended up in open separation from the power of the Spirit of God. And so maybe you're here tonight and you are experiencing the effects of carnality or maybe you feel lacking in the presence of God. You feel distant somehow from God. And you say, what's the solution, Josh? I can tell you it's easy. It's two words. Come back. Come back. Or if you've, if you've never gone away or if you've never received Jesus into your heart, it's come for the first time. And let me give you a warning. Guys, we have to do it before it's gone forever. It was, a, it was a couple Saturdays back that I came to the church in the morning to clean, and it was one of the coldest mornings that we'd had all winter. And it was, it was really brutal. It was just before Christmas. And I left the house early because I wanted to go by the dollar store and get some stocking stuffers or something random. I always buy random stuff at the dollar store. And so as I, I, rode up, as I rolled up, they looked closed. And so you know, I drove up, and I didn't want to really get out of the car, so I drove as close as I could, and it said, uh, store closed due to power outage. Store closed temporarily due to power outage. And I was like, oh, well, that stinks. I'll just go to church. And so I, I drove here to the church, and I was like, okay, all right, I've got some stuff to do. You know what? I'm going to do a little bit of work on my computer, and I'm going to heat up some breakfast. And I'm, I'm early because I left early, and I'm going to do all this stuff. And so I go, and I go to flip the lights. Nothing happens. And I'm like, oh, the power's off. Okay, well, that, that's all right. I can still heat up my breakfast. Can't heat up my breakfast. There's no power. There's no microwave. Of course, we all want an instant society or whatever. So, okay, I was like, all right, so I can get and I can work on my computer. <sighs> and I was like, okay, so I can, you know, and the next thing I know, I'm like, okay, so I can use my phone on the Wi-Fi. To, and I'm like, oh, crud, the Wi-Fi needs power too. Do you guys get where I'm going with this? There was no power. The connection was gone. There was no ability to do anything. And it reminded me of the story of Lazarus and, and, and the rich man. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 16, and I'm just going to summarize it for you, there was a, there was a, there was a poor name, man, name, man named Lazarus who lived a terrible life. He, uh, he tried to eat the scraps from the table of a rich man and, and literally had to fight with the dogs. And he, uh, he just had a terrible life and he ended up dying. And Jesus said that he went to Abraham's bosom. Now at the time, the rich man who had lived this lavish lifestyle also died and he went to Hades. 
And Jesus was giving this parable, but it was kind of the most different parable that we've ever seen because he never usually used people's names. And so he said that where the rich man went, it was hot and it was, it was burning and he was in anguish and torment. And he looked across this great chasm and he saw Lazarus and Abraham and Lazarus was there being comforted, basically in a, a type of situation like paradise. And so the rich man cried out and he said, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus over with one drop of water to cool my tongue? And Abraham said, I'm sorry, but there's a, there's a chasm we can't, we can't cross. And, and the rich man said, well, at least send Lazarus back to go tell my brothers about this because they have to know that I don't want him to come here and... and Abraham said they had the law and the prophets, and even if a man rose from the dead, they wouldn't really believe. And so we were given this glimpse of what happened, and I think of Lazarus and the rich man because unfortunately for the rich man, he'd lived his life and he died. And once you're dead, that's the decision that you've made. And so it was like the power was off. There was no connection. There was no coming back. And... and for all of us, there's a day that will come when there is no more opportunity to come back, no more opportunity to return. But I want to tell you, if you're here and you're hearing my voice right now, then it's not too late for you. And I'm saying, come back. Because we were talking in the youth group this last Wednesday, and we were talking about 1 Samuel chapter 7, and, and what had happened was that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, and, and the children of Israel, I'm just going to tell you about two verses, it's so sad, but the children of Israel said, it said they felt like the Lord had abandoned them. And then in the very next verse, we saw that Samuel, the prophet, said, if you want to return to the Lord, then Take away all the idols out of your lives and return to him. And, and it was so powerful because I told the youth group, and I'm, I'm telling you guys right now, it's not God that moves. Because the children of Israel were like, Lord, he abandoned us. And yet Samuel was like, if you want to return to the Lord, guys, guess what? It's never God that moves. He's constant. And so if you ever feel like you're distant from God, I can tell you with full assurance, it's not God that moved. It's me. I'm the one that walked away. I'm the one that ventured out. I'm the one who let the drift take me to a place where I didn't belong. And so what we're saying is we're saying, come back. And, and I, I'm a nerd, I guess, because I use, uh, I use my cell phone for a lot of electronics for a lot of illustrations because I want to ask you today, how is your signal strength? If you're from my generation and cell phones had just come out um, at the time you were turning like 30, 20, whatever it is, you remember bars on our phones. And, and we're walking around a house or we're walking around a mountaintop and we're going like this. I can't find bars because you, you're trying to make a call and, and 4G, 3G, none of that G existed because all there was was just basic cell service. And so the question is in our lives is how strong is our signal strength because the closer that we get to God the more connectivity we have it's like wi-fi you move way too far out and you're like I can't use my phone for nothing and yet you get close to the source and all of a sudden it's blazing fast because that's the internet that we have these days but I want to tell you guys right now come back you guys want to know what the 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 secret to fighting off carnality in our lives are it's basically taking those four cautions and working them in reverse. 
All it is is instead of dwelling in the world, it's dwelling in God. Instead of being spiritually insensitive, it's to ask God to, to, to hone up our spiritual sensitivity. Instead of sinning without remorse, it's, it's sinning to the point where we're, we're aware of it and confessing that immediately and not continuing in the things that we shouldn't, those, those life, um, those life dominating sins. And then instead of forsaking our faith, leaning into our faith and growing our faith by getting more into the Word of God, because that's exactly what God's Word tells us, is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And then even Samuel gives us a recipe. He says, rid your lives of the things that don't belong. Repent of your sins. And then he says, we're going to offer a sacrifice. And you know what's so amazing in the New Testament? The sacrifice was already offered. All we have to do is receive that gift of the ultimate sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. So let's close with this, because I want to go back one more time to verse 20, where it said that he didn't know. He didn't know that the Lord had departed from him, because as dangerous and destructive and downright scary as that verse that is, that Samson didn't know that the Spirit of God had left him, There's also no more hopeful verse in the Bible that comes just two verses later. Because unlike the rich man from the story that Jesus told, we are here, we are alive, and we are breathing, and we serve the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. Because verse 22 says that however the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. You guys, isn't that an amazing verse? That when we forsake the God of this world who loves us so much that he would die on the cross for us, that yet he still forgives us. He still has mercy on us. He still is hopeful for us. He still wants to restore us. He's still the God of second chances. And while, you know, we see people that make a mistake and we're like, we shoot our, our, we shoot our wounded and yet God is, he's a hospital. God is in the business of restoration, and so Samson's hair began to grow again. So tonight, maybe you find that there are some, some dangers of carnality in your life. Maybe, um, maybe we've compromised our faith to the point where we feel like God is distant. But I want you to know this. God is calling us home tonight. God hasn't given up on us. In fact, again, he hasn't moved. He's waiting with open arms right where we left him. He wants to strengthen our faith to the point where we never become so spiritually insig- or so spiritually insensitive that we don't know if he's there or not. And my prayer, guys, tonight is that we would never, ever, ever experience separation anxiety from God. And so as we go into our time of communion, which is literally a time of fellowship with God, I want to invite you to remember the time in your life, as you look back on your, your Christian walk, whether it's five days or 50 years, I want you to remember the time that you had and felt the sweetest, most real, most powerful presence of God that you've ever had in your life. And I, I, I would like to just encourage you tonight to ask God for his presence to show up in in the most powerful way as we just have a couple minutes left.
As we have the elements uh, of communion right here at the front of the church, the, the bread reminding us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and that his body was broken for us and so that we could have healing and freedom. And then, of course, the cup of juice representing the blood that was shed in a priceless payment for our sins, covering us and making us holy before God. Tonight, I, I want to encourage you to ask for a, a, a restoration of that presence. Like the psalmist said, uh, David said, as, as he had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and committed murder against her husband Uriah, as he's confessing his sin in Psalm 51, he said, Create in me a new heart, O God, and re- restore a right spirit in with me, and do not cast me away from your presence, but restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And then Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy. Because right now, guys, as we enter into this time of communion, we enter into this time of worship, it doesn't matter who's next to you. It doesn't matter who's behind you or who's in front of you. And and if you are next to somebody and you feel like, hey, I'm going to get a better time worshiping God and praying by sitting a little bit to myself, there's plenty of empty chairs, because this is your time. And what matters tonight is that we commune with God and we experience his presence And so we're going to pray, and I'm going to start some music. And when you're ready to come, come and get the elements and take them at your own pace as you spend some time with him. Let's pray. Father, tonight, God, Lord, I know it was a lot of information to cover, but Jesus, more than anything, God, we never want to experience separation from you. We never want to be to that place, Lord, where we become so insensitive to your presence among us, God, that we feel like we don't know if you're there or not. And Jesus, as we were talking to a a saint last night, and she was talking about um, experiencing your presence for the first time, God, it just reminded me of of how powerful you are. And, And God, I know that we all worship you in different ways. Some of us love different types of music, but it's not the music that matters. It's not, again, anything that matters. What matters is you. And so, Jesus, we focus on you, and we ask, God, for your presence to fill this place tonight. We ask for a a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And, God, as we've come, Lord, and we come to the communion table, we don't come um, unrighteously, Lord. We come asking for clean hearts and pure hands. And, Lord, we we don't want to take it um, uh, wrongfully, Lord. And so, even now, God, just cleanse us. We're so thankful. God, for the promise of your presence. And tonight as we're here, Lord, we ask, Father, that you would show up in a mighty, mighty way. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227.
888-382-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.